You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Gwendolyn Keist is the Bram Stoker award-winning author of The Rust Maidens, and her smile will untether the universe. Pretty Mary's all in a row. The invention of ghosts and bone set and feathers. Her new novel is Reluctant Immortals. Thank you for joining me, Gwendolyn. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful book. And I think one of the things that I love about the horror genre, which is what you do with it so well in here, is to use the supernatural and fantastic aspects to take the monsters that live within us and that of which we are disinclined to speak and talk because we want to talk about how terrible we all are ourselves but (laughs) but we're fine talking about the monsters that we make up and that gives us a way to deal with those fears and also those monsters that live within us so so talk about uh approaching the horror genre as a way to look within. Yes, I really love that because that's definitely something I think about a lot as I write. And with this book in particular, because my version of Lucy is a vampire. And so she's really dealing with that monster, both Dracula being outside of her, but then also that that kind of monstrousness within her. And I, I do think, like you said, we don't want to talk about it, but we all sort of know that there's there are aspects of ourselves that we we don't like or that we we don't even fully trust or understand and so i think that horror can be so great for bringing those out and really talking about those and bringing them into the light and and of course now this is a a a meta novel in that your two main characters are essentially somewhat minor characters in the works from which they they came and in a sense this is kind of a supernatural version of the the dead the first wives club club (laughs) (laughs) i had not thought of it like that but i kind of love that yeah (laughs) it is it really is so talk about the where the characters come from and, and and recasting them in this manner yeah, so the two main characters in it are, are Lucy Westenra from Dracula, the first victim in Dracula, and then Bertha Antoinetta Mason from Jane Eyre, so the mad woman in the attic, Edward Rochester's first wife. And yeah, you know, neither one of them are characters that really we got to see a lot of their inner life in the original books or even in any of the film adaptations. And so for me, I just wanted to wanted them to have a chance to, you know, really speak and get their voices heard in a way that I'd never really seen done before and and to put them together and sort of draw attention to the idea that this has happened to more than one gothic you know female character over the years and these are two characters that I think had so much potential in their original stories and and aren't given that kind of spotlight so I just really wanted to be able to give them that 
you know, one of the things that makes books fun is if when you're reading it, if you can tell that the author is having fun writing it. And I have to say that as I read this book and as you spoke, this book is written from the first person perspective of Lucy Westerna. I could just tell you are having a blast with this. How much of this was spontaneous fun and how much of it had you kind of mapped out before you started the book? I mapped out the plot itself and a lot of the specific plot beats, you know, well in advance, you know, as I was going in to write it. But it really, a lot of it did have a still a a spontaneous feel to it because the voices of the characters and the setting really lent itself to this idea of really allowing it to develop, you know, emotionally as the story went on. So I did feel like, you know, there was some of that spontaneity there. And yeah, I did have a lot of fun writing this book. This was the most fun I think I've ever had writing a book. It's just characters I love and a setting I love. And it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to read. It's really a page turner. And one of the things I think that's interesting with a page turner is, in a sense, as you read them, you think, well, this is sort of easy to write. You just have to keep the action going, keep, you know, from one chase scene to the next or or whatever. But I think what you do is this is extremely well written from within the perspective of the characters. And even as we're turning the pages to find out what's happening to the characters in the story, we're constantly thinking about uh, what you're really writing about, which is about, you know, the, the toxic men. And I think that that <laughs> truly toxic men in this case. <laughs> so, so, and I think that that makes it really fun too. It increases the page turnability and you manage to do this, I think, without, as they once said in Man Magazine so many years ago, without wearing your sausage on your sleeve, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I did want to. That that is a heck of a comparison. I, I <laughs> but yeah, really looking at these characters and you know how we perceive them in literature and how these women would perceive them. You know how it would look from Lucy's perspective, what Dracula looks like from her perspective, and what Edward Rochester looks like from his first wife's perspective, Bertha's perspective. So that was something that you know was really bringing to it, wanting to have that different type of you know, outlook on who these characters are. You know, um, also one of the things I think that you do, well, this is really written well as a, at a prose level. So did this all spill off the top of your pen once you got the outline going? Or was there a lot of like going back and finessing out? Because there are so many great lines within the scenes that are fun and funny and also, you know, kind of hit you, you know, again once again make your point about uh male toxicity you know i think it was a combination of both i think you know a lot of what i wrote in the first draft did make it through to the final draft but there was certainly a lot you know of editing in between of really going back and trying to finesse it and trying to get it to a point that it's like okay this this is what i'm what i'm really trying to say here so i think it's a little bit of both i think it was really a little bit of both um now a book like this requires a fair amount of research, both in terms of the original literature and also the, the setting. So first, let's talk about, you know, the the literary sources of the book. This is essentially, you know, Jane Eyre, 
Jane Eyre's first wife uh, meets Dracula's first wife, and mm-hmm. they decide mm-hmm. to go after that their husbands. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the, but you had to become when reading the books. How much uh, you know? Did you read the whole book before, or uh, how did you prepare for this going in, and as you wrote it as well? So in terms of going back to the source material, you know, reading the books, but then really focusing on the sections with Lucy and Dracula and the sections with Bertha and Jane Eyre and really looking at those and kind of going really deep with those and analyzing, okay, what's happening here? How would they feel again from their perspective? You know, what can I use as sort of almost Easter eggs throughout my version to kind of, you know, give a nod back to the source material. So for people who are really big fans of Dracula and Jane Eyre to really have them be able to say, okay, I see this, I remember this from the original. And then also just allowing it to sort of develop organically from there, not being like, you know, having to do everything that is a direct correlate to the original material, just allowing them to develop as characters naturally, because it's been decades since, you know, we've seen them in their original books anyway. So people do change over time and being able to allow for that kind of growth with the characters. It sounds like also too, you you have a lot of fun, I think, in terms of, you know, deviating the characters from where we expect them and where they came from. Did you plot their character arcs in a way to like take them away from, you know, they both start out as somewhat, you know, recognizably from their source material. Talk about, you know, creating a plot arc to drive them away. I like that, a plot arc to drive them away. Yeah, it was something that I wanted to see, you know, what was their, what were their arcs in the original? Obviously very bad for both of them, neither of them survived the books. (laughs) So really thinking, you know, how how can you kind of reclaim that? How can they have a better ending this time around? How can we give them that opportunity and that room to grow and to explore who they are? And then also, you know, really see that they end up in a different place that they did in the in the first in, in their original stories. Now, uh, this book, too, is set in California in 1967. And that is a lot of fun, but it also, again, requires a lot of research. And as somebody who lives in Santa Cruz, a noted home for vampires, as as you, as you well know, so it's all those damn vampires, and I'm the grandpa. <laughs> I'm the grandpa with a shotgun full of silver bullets. Um, uh, I've driven. I used to live in Southern California. I moved to Northern California. So I drive that highway a lot. I still have relatives down there. And I thought you did a good job of conveying the feel of it. Did you drive it? And how much time did you spend just in the places where you were writing about? I I have visited both Los Angeles and San Francisco, in particular the Haight-Ashbury district. I haven't spent a lot of time there. I have driven some of Highway 101. My husband and I actually got married in the Redwood Forest. And so this was like 14 years ago. And it's just like, I have a very happy, I have very happy memories in California. And so I did like think, I think even before writing this, I would think a lot about that highway because again, we drove it and we drove it at, you know, this very happy time in our lives. So it's like always has this really like, you know, 
it's very fresh in my mind. And so whenever I went to write this, I'm like, oh, I can have them driving the, the 101 because it's like, that's, that's you know, a, a road that even though I haven't spent a lot of time on it, I do still feel like to some extent, I know it a little bit. And so, yeah, that was, I de- I'm glad to hear that somebody who lives there is like, yeah, you definitely captured the feel of it. That makes me, that makes me very, very happy to hear because I was, you know, it, in some ways it's almost like dreamlike memories. Cause like I said, it's been about 14 years since satellite since I've been to California. California. So it had this feel of kind of almost being nostalgic at this point anyways. But I was, you know, I I actually did go and I looked at, it was interesting, somebody on YouTube, you can find such interesting things on YouTube. And somebody actually did like this, like very quick, like it's very sped up video on the 101. So I actually like watched this like video of people actually driving. I'm like, okay, this is how I, this is how I remember it. And it was like, you know, being able to actually take the road that they took, you know, Thank you to the YouTube person who posted that like random video. I don't know why anyone would post that, but I'm so glad they did. <laughs> you know, um, at the beginning of this book, I really enjoyed it because um, for me, it does capture some of my feel of Southern California. I've moved, moved up to Northern California 30 years ago. So, but I think I love that feeling of that ramshackle house on the edge of Highway 101. And near the movie theater, <laughs> and so and so, talk about creating just that portion of the novel as a place to start, where you know, living it in the the rotting remains of Southern California, and that's whoa, oh my God, sixty years ago, practically. Yeah, yeah, it's sixty. Yeah, yeah, it's like 55. 55, 55 years ago. Yeah, so. What I did find that was interesting is that Hollywood in particular was a bit ramshackle then, even more so than I think now. Some of it has been sort of revitalized since then. And like the Hollywood sign in particular was very in very, very bad shape. They had to like, you know, raise money to like repair it. So it was like, it felt like a very Gothic setting because it was sort of this in-between time of transition for film because like, television had come and had taken some of the money away and we hadn't gotten to the 70s when there was a lot of like kind of new almost auteur cinema and so we were at a very different place with Hollywood at that point and so it was interesting to learn that as I was researching it to realize that I picked a time that it was kind of gothic and there was a lot of decay so these characters that are undead and Lucy in particular that brings a lot of decay with her because she's a vampire kind of fits into the setting and so that was that was really interesting to me especially I love the 60s and I love Hollywood history and then even with the drive-in which is a big setting in the book you know drive-ins were kind of like starting to almost decay at that point it was had been very popular in the 50s but by the end of the 60s they weren't quite as popular as they had been I feel like they've had a renaissance the last few years especially with the pandemic which has been that that was at least a silver lining because I love drive-ins I think that they're just a lot of fun and so that that was a, a way of kind of saying it's another you know, there's some decay involved. There's some things that are nostalgic, even in by the late 60s, drive-ins were starting to feel nostalgic. So that that was interesting to me to just bring all of that in together. You know, um, it one of the things too you do is you do a lot of invention in the world of the supernatural. Let's start first with uh, your take on the vampire because it's it's certainly not standard, but it fits within the lore. Talk about, you know, understanding, you know, looking at the history of the vampire as conceived in literature and in horror literature and also 
in film because uh, horror is a genre that is, I think, more closely tied with film or influenced by film, but also horror films stand in about equally high regard as horror literature, which is, to a certain extent, they're considered somewhat trashy. On the, <laughs> on the other hand, there are a number of horror films that are considered absolute magnificent masterpieces because they are, as same with the horror literature. You know, when you say horror literature, people say, oh, my God. <laughs> but on the other hand, the... I, at this point, a lot of horror literature is considered, you know, among the canon works of great writers and not without reason. Yeah. Yeah, that is so interesting. I, I like to think that that's changing to some extent. You know, we always say horror goes through these different Renaissance periods, and I do think we're in one right now. Like, there's a lot of, you know, just people talking more about horror and taking horror more seriously. So that that's really interesting to see and to be able to be part of at this moment. But yeah, there is this sense that, you know, maybe it's a little bit trashy. I've never felt that way because I've always loved horror, but I do know that that is a thing that some people feel. And I'm always like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's awesome. But yeah, going back to what you were talking about with vampire lore, you know, what, something that's, that's always been fascinating to me is how there are such different rules of being a vampire. Like you go back to Bram Stoker and, you know, the sunlight thing was not really the way it is now. It's not like if Dracula had gone out during the day, he just didn't have power as opposed to in many versions, you, a vampire goes out and they just turn immediately to dust. And so kind of picking apart, you know, how this lore has changed, how everybody's sort of adapting it for whatever they they want or whatever they need for their stories. And so that really, it's a malleable folklore. And it really is a kind of folklore. I think of like vampires as being like part of folklore in this way, the kind of fairy tales are part of it. And that we keep retelling these different tales, you know, to suit what we want to talk about or to explore where we're at at a given period of time. And so that that's really interesting to me, just like the way the history of the vampire and, you know, where it came from and how it's changed over time in literature. You know, one thing when you are talking about uh, horror these days, and I think what you say is true, horror is taken like a little more seriously of like, you know, movies like The the Witch and Midsommar. You know, these are auteur movies and are viewed, mm -hmm. they receive largely positive reviews or regarded well. And I, you know, Stephen King is now, and not without reason again, considered, you know, a, a masterful writer whose work is definitely worth looking at. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very interesting because your book, <laughs> takes a slightly different approach is that I feel it really emphasizes the kind of glee and fun that, that we found in the 80s. This book could easily come out of the 80s renaissance of horror when there was splatterpunk and and quiet horror and, and, and all this material. And I think that even though your book has the kind of literary sheen because of the the importance of the topic you're discussing it's still just you know it's gonzo fun <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that that makes me happy to hear because that that was definitely something i wanted to bring to it i think because there's a lot of like meta elements to it that it's referencing dracula within the book that i think when you take that a little too seriously it can be a little bit hard for readers so to me i thought 
let's actually have fun with it. Let's acknowledge that vampires are sort of known in this world and that Dracula is known in this world. And that just seemed like a, a, a fun angle to take as I was telling the story. So I'm glad to hear that that, that came across as, as, a, as a good time. I'm happy to hear that. I Also, I think you do something very interesting with the Earl of Rochester because in Charlotte Bronte, though, her work had the Bronte sisters, both of their work has the feel of the supernatural. Mm -hmm. It's right there, but it's never overt. Mm -hmm. and, and you bring it out into, into the open, I think, and in a really interesting way. Talk about the decision to to do that because it wasn't necessary, but I think it really feeds the narrative and it works well, certainly within the plot of the story, which is, you know, it's one of the most pleasing aspects of the page turning plot and also just to see you know where these character arcs come crashing down into the ground in a blinding you know uh uh dr strange lovian light <laughs> yeah i love that you said that the bronte sisters work is always like right at the edge of being supernatural, but doesn't usually cross it. Cause that was something that I always found fascinating about both Jane Eyre and Withering Heights is that they're not quite supernatural, but those elements are always around it. Everything feels haunted. Everything feels Gothic. There's allusions at times to vampires and, and to supernatural elements. In Jane Eyre there, she can almost communicate telepathically with Rochester at one point. And so to me, because those elements are always right there and I always loved those elements as a horror fan, I'm like, let's just bring those to the forefront. Let's just tease those out and let's, let's do something with that because that's not a thing you usually see done with Jane Eyre. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a version of Jane Eyre that's been overtly supernatural, that's really leaned into the supernatural elements. And for me, that just seemed, especially as a horror writer, such a natural direction to go. And then to bring it into Dracula and imagine them being in a world together just seemed like really combining those supernatural elements could just be a lot of fun and could be an interesting way to explore, you know, what, what this means for these two female characters and what it means for, you know, Rochester and Dracula. Well, too, um, I think uh, Bertha Mason Rochester is a is really an interesting character when you when you think about it. Jane Eyre was way ahead of its time because Plus. she because she's a she's Creole, and, yes. and so that and that's something that you know is not often it's not uh, front and center in the narrative itself, but it's there and you bring it more front in center so and, and in fact at one point in in the uh jane Eyre, uh she is described as being like a german vampire yes mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. talk about uh you know the racial aspect uh, of the character and i think again you do a fantastic job of mentioning that but not like shining a giant spotlight and saying here 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 <laughs> yeah, I really did want to bring that out because yes, Bertha is is biracial. That's absolutely, you know, a reading that a lot of people take on it. And that's how I've always taken the book. And so I thought that that was important because like you said, it's not really mentioned that much in Jane Eyre originally, but it is alluded to certainly. And so 
that to me was something to really bring out and say, this is a, this is an aspect of it too. And is this part of why he had such a problem with Bertha? Because the suggestion almost is in the original book that he didn't know she was biracial, only that she was, you know, from, from Spanish town. And so there, there was that element of it that I, I did want to bring in and I did want to talk about, you know, and, and consider because that is absolutely part of it. It's absolutely part of Jane Eyre. And it's definitely, I wanted it to be a part of her character in my book as well. And, and Dracula as well has a very interesting character in this book. He, he's more on the uh, uh, John Travolta side than the, uh, uh, than the uh, Nosferatu side. <laughs> Although you, we, we, you bring in Nosferatu. So talk about the decision to make uh, Dracula in the way you did. Explain that how how he's presented in the book and why. Yeah, I I I love all the versions of Dracula. Really, I don't know that there's a version of Dracula I've ever seen or an interpretation like that's the worst. Like I just really love all the different interpretations. But one that I haven't seen really done is just him being depicted more in this almost human way and just kind of like everybody's worst ex like your worst ex-boyfriend you know just a really <laughs> bad ex-boyfriend and so to me I, I don't feel like i've ever seen a version of dracula like that and i felt that's actually a very relatable depiction and a way that you can kind of take the original material and update it and it's still there's elements of that you know there's elements of that in the original and I thought that would be really fun to see. Like, what if instead it's like so many of them, he's 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 so powerful and he is powerful in this, certainly. But like the, the emphasis is on the power and how how charismatic he is and those play into it. But I thought, what if he's just your really bad ex-boyfriend and what would you how would you deal with that if Dracula was your ex-boyfriend? So I thought that that would just be a lot of fun to play with. I suspect that many women who read this book will think my ex-boyfriend was like Dracula. <laughs> Because, you know, too, it's the idea that not just that he's, uh, you know, turns people into vampires, but that he's always there in your mind. And I think that that's an interesting take, you know, that the exes, spouses in your life, the people that you thought you got rid of, they, they live on forever, not necessarily in reality, but in your tiny brain where they're doing more damage than they maybe ever did when they were in your actual life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was something that I was really thinking about when I was writing this book about how just because she has him at the beginning, he's in, he's divided up into urns. His ashes are in urns. And it's almost like that. It's almost like the urns almost serve as like the memories that we have of people who are, are no longer in our lives, but have caused damage. And it's sort of like omnipresent and it's always there. And so, yeah, that was definitely something I was thinking of as I was writing it. And, and uh, Lucy as well for, for a, a heroine, there are, probably are not many heroines I've read about read in almost any literature where they spend much of the time telling you how awful they are and that they are monsters and i think that this idea of the monster inside us is mm -hmm. important to you and it also makes her a really good character just to read i mean a little hannibal lecterish <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so, so talk about, you know, writing the prose and because she's kind of flip and I think you do a good job of, you know, getting in her brain and the turns of phrase that the way she looks at things, it, it, it's dark, but well, it reminds me long ago, I read a, Gay and Wilson, you know, famous cartoonist, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, he used to write uh, movie reviews for the Twilight Zone magazine. Okay. And at one point, he wrote a review of The Howling. And what he said was that there was, it was so over the top that at one point, one of the characters is talking to you, and he's a werewolf, and you're partway into the scene before you realize that his face has been melted away by acid that somebody threw in it in his face. <laughs> and he's, you don't even notice this. And I think that this effect is at work in your book and that there are times when, when people are just completely awful and so terrible that you kind of don't notice it because, it's a, you know, it's all being seen, conveyed to you by somebody who's already a monster. Oh, that's interesting. I, I like that. Yeah. And so the, the uh, because she is already monstrous, there is that element that the monstrous around her sort of plays differently. That that's really that's really an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. As I was writing her, it was something that I, I wanted to deal with that of like the idea of she's been through something so traumatic and it's fundamentally changed her, but she still wants to retain that part of herself that is hers and to be able to define herself rather than be defined by what's happened to her. And it, it's a struggle for her because there are those monstrous elements in her and as a vampire. And so that is this constant struggle throughout the book. And she does acknowledge it a lot because it's something that is always, it, it scares her. It's, it's, a, it's definitely something that terrifies her. And at the same time, you know, there's a part of her that, that you know, there's a power in it and she doesn't want to abuse that power and that, that frightens her as well. So it does kind of all play into, into this idea of what does it mean to be monstrous? What does it mean to know that about yourself? Now, we have sadly reached the point in history where hippies are fully historical. <laughs> Even though I can remember as a child, my parents took us. We went on, the, uh, did some hippie tourism when I was, I was but a lad. I uh, drove down to uh, Haight-Ashbury and, and, and looked, looked at the hippies. So talk about researching hippies and, and writing about that time from the perspective of somebody who sees that as, you know, the distant future that they're now unfortunately experiencing. But for you, it's the distant past. That's, I like that. That's true. Yeah, one of the good things about researching the 60s is there's so many documents, there's so many books written about the 60s, there's so many pictures, there's so many videos. We were at a place where people, that obviously videos weren't as common as they are now because everybody has a phone, but I mean, there were a lot of people who did go down there and, you know, did really take videos and take a lot of pictures. So there were a lot of things that, you know, I could draw off of as I was researching. And so that was really nice, you know, to be able to do that. But it, you're right. The hippies are really of the past now. They really are. 
It's sad to say. And I'm wondering, too, um, the the way you uh, deal with Jane Austen, I think, is, <laughs> is really great because you do flip the script on... Uh, or Jane... Not Jane. Jane Eyre. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've done that a couple times too, as I talk about this book, because I like Jane Austen too. So sometimes I'll accidentally say Jane Austen and I'll have to catch myself like, no, 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 Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, other Jane that I like from that era. So I, I, I've done that as well. <laughs> so, but I think well, you do uh, talk about uh, flipping the script between uh, and, you know, the the character interest between Jane and B, and, mm-hmm. and also it's, you know, orchestrating this book, there are, you know, some wonderful moments in it. You know, uh, a lot of great set pieces. It reminds me of them. It's very uh, cinematic in that sense, in that there are lots of great set pieces. They go, okay, now here's that scene. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to explore was with Jane from, you know, from Jane Eyre, she... She is very headstrong in the original book, but by the time we see her in in this book, she's just had so much terrible things happen to her over the years that when we first see her, she's a little bit meeker. She's a little bit more lost than she was when we saw her at the end of Jane Eyre. And I did also want to deal with the idea that maybe the the only relationship in her life was not just with Rochester, but was with Bertha, was with B, as she's known in, in this book. And that that really opened up a lot of possibilities as to, you know, what happened and why it happened the way that it did, provided that, you know, we can't exactly trust the source material. If maybe what really happened isn't exactly how it happened in the book that, like, like they say, like the, the victors, you know, write history. And so really taking that into account and saying, okay, well, maybe the story that we've been told isn't exactly what the story is. And sort of exploring that and going down that road as to what does that mean and how does that happen? How do we change our stories as time goes on? You know, one of the things too that that I found as I was reading this book is um, the idea of, of of harems. I mean, uh, it's mm-hmm. central to this book, and it's actually somewhat central to both the original uh, source material. So, talk mm-hmm. about um, you know this idea that men have, have are surrounded who are surrounded by multiple wives at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, in this harem. It's a really interesting vision of, of that's from the past, but fits the model and the mold of the toxic male as we now understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's a, an interesting point. So these groups of women, you know, in obviously in Dracula, there's the original three brides, and so you've got that they're right there, right at the forefront at Castle Dracula, and so you know, that's definitely something. And then even in Jane Eyre, it's less like that. But he does. Rochester loves to have parties. He loves to bring in women that give him attention there. So it's not quite as pronounced as what happens in Dracula with the three brides, but it's definitely something that is there. Then you look at what happened in in the 1960s in particular, those things like this still happen today. You'll have these like cults, these group of people where, you know, a man will will be the leader and they'll just have a bunch of wives or a bunch of women that come in. I mean, obviously, you know, we think a lot about, you know, Charles Manson and what happened at Spawn Ranch and everything because that that's sort of that. But 
there it happened more than just that in the 1960s that one just was obviously the one that we go to because of of the crimes and, and the history there I'm a huge fan of Sharon Tate, so I always like to bring her up if I'm going to say the name Manson. I always like to bring up Sharon Tate because I'm such a fan of hers. And but at the same time, you know, this idea of these cults and these these men who do have like control over a lot of women, you know, and have this kind of thrall over them. And so it seemed like a really natural fit between Dracula and Jane Eyre and this era and what was happening anyways. And that kind of through line through history of, of men doing things like this. I thought you did a, a good job of there in the scenes with the harems. As I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, in terms of, of this being a horror novel and evincing fear within the reader, that, you know, a lot of the, this book, it's adventure and, and in the thriller mode where, you know, she's in pursuit and, and wants to, to get this guy and put him down once and for all. And that's good and it's exciting. But with the harems, you do events that fear because as a reader, I'm reading this and thinking, oh my God, Charles Manson, that's extremely creepy. I mean, that's like out of the sort of fun range and into the disturbing range. And you do a good, I thought it was nice that in reading this, it's suggested most readers are going to bring that up out of the depths of their reptile, awful brain. And then they're going to think, so, uh, you know, it's a good way of putting horror in a horror novel that is awfully fun much of the time. (laughs) Yeah, that that was something that I I was thinking of, of like, you know, how to bring in the horror elements and how to make them recognizable in a way that, like you said, that those images come up. We've heard of kind of cults from that era and we have a very kind of scary reaction to that because we know the history of it. And so that that was very much, you know, again, on my mind as I as I was writing this. And the other character, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that I really like, and I could sense that you also enjoyed it, although he's not around a lot, is Renfield. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, this is a, if and when they make the movie of this, the guy who gets to play Renfield is going to have a lot of fun, although he'll have to be, you know, mostly uh, CGI at this point in time. <laughs> Yes, because he's so decayed. Renfield is so decayed. Yeah, I I always loved Renfield. Renfield is a little bit like Lucy in the fact that they're both sort of forgotten characters in the in the originals. You know, they're sort of tossed aside as the narrative goes on. So I really felt like there was a kind of natural affinity to the two of them. And it made sense to sort of bring him into it as a supporting character because they relate to each other in a lot of ways. And they're ne- they never appear together in the original book. So it was a fun uh, opportunity to bring them together. And now uh, an essential part of the horror genre and it, is humor and on one hand it's you want to say it's unexpected but when we think of a movie like american werewolf from london it's both hilarious and awful at the same time yeah and and you manage that so talk about the humor in in this book because there's a lot of it It's, it's it's a funny book though you wouldn't describe it as a humorous book 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good way of, of describing it. it. It's not, it's not a humorous book. It's not a comedy, but there's a lot of dark humor in it. I actually like that you brought up an American werewolf uh, in London because, you know, that kind of idea of that blending of dark humor into very horrifying situations. It's something that I've always been fascinated with and I've always loved as a fan of horror. And so it's definitely something when I, I feel like I have the right material to be able to bring that into it that I, I really like to. I, I'm curious um, with this, when you were writing it, it seemed it's very uh, cin- cin- cinematic. Um, as a writer, did you experience this as a movie that you were kind of directing and writing the script for? Or, or um was this more of a prose recreation? I, my, I have a background in film and in independent filmmaking. And so when I write, I do tend to see it play out in my head like a movie. And I do try to write it like that so that the scenes are kind of laid out in this way that we can kind of see it as it as it goes along in that way. So it was definitely a conscious choice to really have this sort of cinematic scope and like, you know, I'm editing it all in my head and like the different scenes and different shots and everything. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely where I was coming from. Because, uh, you know, the, there's a lot in this movie. This book is, is a very visual. Um, and I'm was, as I read it, I thought, well, you know, this would be also interesting. Could, easily play as a as a graphic novel have you worked in that space before i haven't no i actually haven't worked in the graphic novel space but that sounds that that's of course sounds great because you know i love graphic novels i think they're beautiful i think it's such a such an interesting way and i never really thought about it till just now but how it is a kind of bridge between literature and film that it's this way that you kind of bring it into something that's sort of in between the two but its own distinct uh, medium unto itself. So it's a really, really interesting. Now, um, I'm wondering too, this book admits, allows, and maybe encourages a sequel. Have you thought of writing a, a sequel to this? Or I, I'm not, I mean, is any of your other work in, rise up in this? Or do you see a sequel at this point I I wouldn't rule it out but like I I'm okay with this being the whole story but you know I don't think any other than some short stories that I have written you know that kind of inspired this this is really you know very much a standalone for me at this point but again you know I I'm willing to keep my options open and if I come up with an idea at some point down the line I'd absolutely be happy to expand it and I'm I'm guessing that this uh, because I'm reading this now um, that you're well into something else now, and I'm wondering what, how do you see the horror genre as someone who participates in, and where do you see it going, and where do you see yourself going? You know, I mean, I hope that you know we just continue on with this era where horror is given a little bit more respect and a little bit more, you know, spotlight. And I think the last few years have been really great for horror. So I just hope that that continues. For a while, there wasn't even horror, it wasn't even a horror section in bookstores. So it's nice to see, you know, that there are again. That's exciting. And yeah, just to continue to continue to see it, just continue to see horror 
thrive. I think that that's just great. And if I can be a part of that in some way, that just makes me happy. It's just happy to be here. That's what I always say. I'm just happy to be a part of it. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think too, uh, that the whole idea of horror as an externalizing form of fiction, where you can externalize your interior conflicts and turn them into monsters and have them fight for you. And as opposed to you fighting with yourself or, or your family is an interesting way to go. And I'm wondering if you see other genres as something that, you know, you might be interested in because, because fantasy and science fiction both offer some of the same kind of externalizing aspects and sure, there's psychological thrillers as well. Yeah, you know, for me, I'm probably going to stay mostly in horror at this point, but I have written a little bit of science fiction. I've written a little bit of fantasy. So, you know, I don't rule it out and I love them as genres, obviously. You know, I, I pretty much love every genre. I don't know if there's a genre of literature or film that I don't, you know, that there aren't examples of things that I love from them. So I always try to keep my options open, you know, but for this, for, at this point, I'd say horror is probably my home. <laughs> uh, are, do you have a new book started? Yeah, yeah, I've, uh, I'm working on with my editor on my next book. So that's a, it's a, about a haunted neighborhood and three uh, girls who used to live there who had escaped it before it became haunted have to go back and and deal with the with the ghosts of the past. So yeah, well, I, I'm a fan of uh, the fiction of suburbia because I think that that's uh, you know it, it's a, a landscape that emits again that looks bland and somewhat uninteresting yet it, it doesn't take much to you know turn it inside out and the supernatural is a a good way to deal with that yeah yeah i i really agree i think suburbia i think is like like one of the most haunted places to me like just uh metaphorically and it's so interesting so yeah that's definitely something i was bringing to this book so yeah i love that um I'm wondering, have has this book or any of the other books been optioned for films? Not at this point, not at this point, but hopefully, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. This sounds like a good, uh, this would definitely be a good one. I have been speaking with Gwendolyn Keist. Her new novel is Reluctant Immortals. Thank you for joining me, Gwendolyn. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.